Welcome to the show. I'm still a little sick. You could probably hear it in my voice a little bit. But that's okay. Nothing that's going to halt the progress of said talk show. So um, we had a little bit of an election on Tuesday. We're going to talk about the results of it. Um, I'm going to lead with that. And it's mostly good news sprinkled in a little tiny bit of bad news. We have um, Joe Biden hitting levels of self-parody that I didn't even know were humanly possible. Um, that's going to be an interesting conversation. It's like he has no, like, the ability to self-perceive, his ability to self-perceive is as bad as an establishment Republican. And I know those are, those are tough words, but it's totally true, and I'm going to prove it to you. Um, we have Bill Gates outing himself as a giant prick. There's this uh, myth about Bill Gates that, oh, he's, you know, one of the more benevolent billionaires. Wait until you hear what he said when he um, waded into the realm of politics. We have um, a new Quinnipiac poll with a bunch of very, very good news for one Bernard Sanders. You're really not going to want to miss that. In fact, as I'm talking to you, I will pull up... um, some tweets that I have in connection with that story because you're going to love the details. Okay. Uh, And Tulsi Gabbard takes on The View. I just, I got a lot of stuff. They're over, the extremely overpaid hacks on MSNBC are sharpening their election analysis skills with some of the most superficial takes on politics you've ever heard. So anyway, without further ado, let's get started. And we'll do that with a little wee bit of an election we had last. Little wee bit of an election. 
So we had an election on Tuesday, and the results are absolutely fascinating. So this is from Vox. Voters all over the country headed to the polls to decide local and state elections. The headline-grabbing contest was Democrat Andy Bashir beating Republican incumbent Governor Matt Bevin in the Kentucky governor's race. A state president, Donald Trump, won by a whopping 30% in 2016. Some caveats. Bevin was among the most unpopular governors in the country, and other Republican leaders in the state outperformed him on Tuesday. But Bashir's win was still a big loss for Trump, who campaigned in Kentucky just a day before the election, explicitly tying Bevin's race to his own reputation. The results also showed that Democrats in Kentucky excuse me, were fired up. Bashir outperformed the 2015 Democratic gubernatorial candidate in many areas of the state. The other huge story was Virginia's state legislature elections, where Democrats flipped both the state and, or excuse me, both the state House and Senate, ensuring a trifecta with Governor Ralph Northam already in the governor's mansion. So um, <laughs> there's a funny little thing about politics. Uh, Northam was the Democrat who had a blackface scandal. He apparently wore blackface in, like, college or something. Um, And then also, if you guys remember, Justin Trudeau had a blackface scandal as well in Canada, and he apparently wore blackface about 732 times. (laughs) There were so many pictures of him in blackface. Everybody was like, did you do it, like, every Saturday or something? Like, what's wrong with you? But anyway, uh, Trudeau got reelected and Northam got reelected. So now conventional wisdom is going to become, wow, if you want to win elections, wear blackface. (laughs) I'm obviously joking about that, but it's funny how, like, there's no, there are no shortcuts in politics. And whenever, whether people on the right or people on the left try to use, like, PC outrage as a main motivating factor in an election, it just won't work. So anyway, another guy who wore blackface um, won an election. So this is all pretty good news. Now, I want to give you some more information. There was another big victory, which is New York City approved ranked choice voting. That was on the ballot as a, you know, direct ballot initiative, a ballot provision where the people got to directly vote on it. And it was a crushing victory. I don't remember the exact number, but I think it's somewhere between 65% and 75% of voters in New York City that want ranked choice voting. So this gets back to something that I've been talking a lot about lately. I, you know, almost made it a centerpiece of my uh, conversation with Joe Rogan, that we should have a federal direct ballot initiative law. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand, because the counter arguments are obvious, right? The counter arguments are, okay, well, what happened if the year was 1959 and you decided to vote on ending segregation at the national level? What would have happened? People would have been pro-segregation, so this is not the best way to go. But you have to remember, we have a constitution in this country, and I'm not talking about scrapping the Constitution and doing, you know, mob rule, majoritarian rule in every aspect of our lives. I believe we should have a Constitution. People should have rights which are off the table. Obviously, being equal under the law is one of those things that's off the table. And then outside of the things that are rights, outside of your constitutional protections, that's where the direct ballot initiatives come into play. And that's where you get a version of direct democracy that also protects constitutional rights and civil liberties. So, you know, the response to that is pretty simple. It's, we're, I'm not talking about scrapping the Constitution. You can't democratically vote to overturn, like, free speech, for example. That's in there, and that ain't going nowhere, and it should 
stay in there and not go anywhere. So having a constitution is very important. But outside of that, direct democracy is very good. And again, guys, over 80% of the time, the side that I think is the most reasonable side ends up winning when you have a, a direct vote on it. So this is just another example of that happening here. Now, the only downside of these elections, as far as I could tell, maybe I missed a, you know, a handful of uh, things here or there, but Amazon poured $1.4 million into the Seattle City Council races, and left candidates got defeated in Seattle. So Lee Fong tweeted about this. He said, Amazon poured $1.4 million into Seattle City Council races, emphasizing commitment to diversity and gay rights to defeat Democratic Socialists and left-leaning Democrats who dare to raise taxes to pay for health care and homeless services. So this is interesting because when you have an area that is um, overwhelmingly partisan in a Democratic direction, the real fight there is not Democrat versus Republican. The real fight there is which wing of the Democratic Party do you want? And it's now like a, a tried and true purposeful strategy from corporate centrists that we're going to go all in on the language of identity politics and the language of you know, commitment to diversity and gay rights. Now, obviously, I'm 100% in favor of gay rights. I also am 100% in favor of the further left candidates. And it is this bait and switch and this little trick that's being used now from corporate centrists where they try to make you think, they try to outflank the further left candidates on the left by finding little areas where their rhetoric can appear to outflank them on the left. And then also when you mix that in with um, the fact that Amazon's you know, funding, giving a tremendous amount of money to the worst candidates, to the centrist candidates, that can be a destructive mix. And that's what happens. So, you know, one of the best and furthest left lawmakers in the country, uh, Kashama Sawant, um, as of right now, lost her race. I think they're doing some sort of a recount thing or whatever it might be, but it looks like she's going to lose. By the way, the same thing with the Bevin versus Bashir race, the Kentucky governor's race here is they're also doing like a, a recount because, you know, Bashir won by like 0.5 percentage points. So, I mean, that's close enough where Bevin wants a recount. We better watch out for some, for some fuckery because, you know, this is something that we've seen, unfortunately, time and time again, where the Republicans will get really tricky and sleazy and sometimes just outright steal elections. And, um, you know, we saw it with Stacey Abrams. I mean, that election was flat out stolen from her. So anyway, the downside is Kashama Sawan is gone. Uh, big money still has a giant impact in elections. The left was defeated in, um, in Seattle. But everywhere else, the Democrats did really well. Now, here's the thing, guys. You just better hope that the national Democrats don't learn the wrong lessons from this. Because when you go to um, Kentucky, and by the way, credit to the Hill TV, because, you know, Crystal went to Kentucky and, and Sagar and Crystal covered it. And basically the main focus of this election in Kentucky was not, you know, Ukraine gate or Russia gate or the impeachment narrative and all that stuff. No, the main focus, and obviously this is state level politics, so it wouldn't be that national level stuff, but it was on um, teachers, healthcare and education. This is what the main focus was, unionization. So, when Democrats focus on the bread and butter issues, when Democrats stick to the fundamentals, the Republicans are screwed because the nominal Democratic positions, the left positions, 
on the basic bread and butter issues, the Democrats are way more popular on those things. When you're talking about unionization, when you're talking about, you know, minimum wage, when you're talking about health care. I mean, quite literally, Democratic governors around the country, they're all in favor of the Medicaid expansion. The Medicaid expansion was a provision of Obamacare, which was an incredibly popular provision, which basically said, um, we're going to use uh, Medicaid. Did I say Medicare before? Medicaid, the Medicaid expansion. We're going to use Medicaid and raise that line for people who are eligible to 132% of the poverty line. So it expands Medicaid by millions of people around the country, gives millions of people more health care, and prevents, like, literal deaths. Like, you are saving lives. There was a study on this where over 10,000 people die since Republican governors refused the Medicaid expansion. Many of them did that. So the Democrats are running on expanding Medicaid, which is the Democrats running on, I'm in favor of more people getting health care than the Republican is. So when you run on the bread and butter issues, you are forcing the Republicans to defend the more unpopular position, and they can't do it, and they lose. And that's what happened here. There was tremendous union organizing that happened in Kentucky. The, uh, the Democrats stuck to the bread and butter issues. Now, I'm sure Bashir is way more centrist than, you know, than my tastes. But what you're seeing is, again, when you have a race and you stick to the basics, you can win. Now, Bevin was just solely relying on you know, Daddy Trump to come in there and help him. And remember, this really is one of the most unpopular governors in the country. And there's – so there are a few stories. I remember because I covered Bevin a bunch of times because he's just such a maniac. Uh, one of the things that he made national news for, he said that uh, he, blamed, he blamed child abuse on the teacher strike that was going on there. <laughs> he said the teacher strike is leading to child abuse. He said, if you aren't employed, you don't deserve health care. This is a guy who was the governor of Kentucky. Um, he said, we can't legalize weed because of the overdoses. <laughs> Come on, man. Like, you have to be able to be this guy. If you can't be this guy, it's just beyond pathetic. Um, he, he literally proposed a prayer group to try to reduce crime. One of the things he focused on was requiring all government documents in Kentucky to say, in the year of our Lord. And by the way, he got that through. So this, like, this is the stuff that he's focusing on. He called for civil war if Hillary Clinton won. Um, he promised to gut Medicaid, and he did. He refused the Medicaid expansion. So, listen, it's great that the Democrats won here, but you have to take away the, the right lesson. My fear is the National Democrats will go, oh, so let's just keep talking about Ukraine and keep talking about impeachment and keep talking about these sideshow issues, which are not directly related to policy. But no, the way Bashir won was talking about policy. The way the Kentucky Democrats won was focusing on health care, focusing on education, and putting the Republicans in a position where they had to defend their, their unpopular policy positions. So mostly a positive election, but don't get too comfortable, by the way. Don't get too comfortable. Because this is something that, of course, could happen. There, the, the lesson from this could be, from people who are wrong, could be, oh, well, no matter what, we're going to do well if you're on the Democratic side. No. No. Because um, the Republicans are not going to stop going on the offense. Trump is not going to stop doing his rallies. And they will shore up their base. And this might be a wake-up call to them for 2020. So you can't relax. You know, you can't uh, run corporate centrists. 
you have to stick to the fundamentals, stick to the bread and butter issues, and go hard in the paint, man. So anyway, largely positive election results. Um, but yet again, we see big money rules today in, in Seattle, and we, we lost Kashama Sawant's seat. But just take the right lesson away from this. That's the most important thing. Okay, next. I have definitely gained weight, man, because these jackets are not fitting me as well. That is not good. All right, let's go to Joe Biden and make fun of him mercilessly. Here we go. Joe Biden is reaching levels of self-parity that I previously thought were impossible. So take a look at what Politico says. Joe Biden on Wednesday dug in on his assertion that Elizabeth Warren is elitist, hoping to cast his fellow frontrunner as an Ivy League liberal out of sync with the middle class. Biden's comment was in a Medium post on Tuesday and reiterated in a radio interview this morning, underscores the theme central to Biden's candidacy, that he is the lone Democrat who can win back the white working class voters who swung the 2016 election to Donald Trump. Quote, if you don't agree with Elizabeth Warren, you must somehow be not a Democrat. You must somehow be corrupt. You must somehow not be as smart as she is, Biden said on SiriusXM's Urban View. It's just something we don't do in our party. It's not who we are. She has things in her plan that are just not realistic. But if you question it, she says, you don't understand or you're talking like a Republican, Biden said. It's just an elitist uh, attitude that it's either my way or the highway. You know, he's got some nerve, man. He's got some nerve. Anybody who follows this stuff not even closely. Anybody who follows this stuff, even from like a slight distance, can look at this and go, oh my God, he's projecting. This is all it is. It's sheer projection. Because Joe Biden, you're the person who goes out there and says, we're America. We can do anything. Anything. And then the next sentence, you're like, definitely not Medicare for all. We definitely can't give everybody health care because that's pie in the sky, unicorn, fairy dust, nonsense. Wait, which is it? Can we do anything because we're America, or can we not do a basic thing that every other developed country has found a way of doing? Which is it? And he's saying elitist because he's like, oh, if you don't agree with her, you must be wrong. You must be a Republican. No, the reason why they're calling you know, your ideas like a Republican are because your ideas are like a Republican. <laughs> That's why they're doing that, because all you have is half measures that keep the status quo intact. I mean, his health care bill, what is it? I forget the exact number. It's like five or ten million people who are uncovered as a result of his, um, his health insurance policy that he proposed. Okay, there's a reason why they're calling you like a Republican, because the Republicans have no problem leaving people uncovered, and neither does Joe Biden. That's why. So he's got some nerve spinning this, spinning this as because she cares about the policies that she's proposing. And by the way, everybody knows I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter, not an Elizabeth Warren supporter. Bernie's for the left of Elizabeth Warren. So I should make that clear, but her policy proposals are much more detailed than Biden's 
And the fact that she's wonky, doesn't, that doesn't equal elitist. Wonky doesn't equal elitist. Elitist is serving the interests of elites. And again, the reason they call you corrupt is not because you're Joe Biden or you're, you know, you're middle class Joe, as you call yourself. It's because you are corrupt. And by the way, at the exact same time that this headline was running about how Joe Biden called Elizabeth Warren elitist, look at what Biden was doing. Joe Biden tells K Street fundraiser GOP will have epiphany after Trump. So as he's calling her elitist, he's doing big money fundraisers. I mean, it's self-parody, man. At the same time, a headline's running, Joe Biden says Elizabeth Warren is elitist. He's out there doing a K Street fundraiser. And by the way, no, Republicans will not have an epiphany after Trump. Not even close. You were in the White House for eight years with Obama. You didn't see that the establishment Republican Party is TFG, too far gone. You didn't see that? Because they broke the filibuster record when Obama was in there. You think they're what? They're somehow going to agree with you, like you, meet you halfway, do your ideas. Are you crazy? There's no way that that's true. But the reality is, guys, he keeps saying this stuff because he's going to go do their policies and then pretend like it's a success when he agrees, oh, we got to cut Social Security and Medicare, for example. He is. He's going to want to do a grand bargain. And then he's going to turn around and spin it as like, what a great victory this is, bipartisan agreement, bipartisan agreement. But it's not because they came to his position. It's because he, he went to their position. But isn't that amazing? As he's accusing other candidates of being elitist, he's doing a big money fundraiser. By the way, he's also accepting super PAC money now. Why? Because he couldn't cut it just raising money from individual donors, from small dollar donors, because he doesn't have that same grassroots support as Bernie Sanders does, and even as Elizabeth Warren does. He doesn't have that same grassroots level of support. So, again, projection 101. Projection 101. I'll accuse you guys of being elitist as I do a K-Street fundraiser, as I accept money from a super PAC. By the way, the reason why it's so disgusting is because a super PAC, since it's technically an independent outside group spending on the election, you could have one billionaire give as much money as they want, and then he could fund his campaign with the money of just one or two billionaires. So he's like a shadow candidate. He's a propped-up candidate. He's not, it's not, there's not genuine grassroots enthusiasm. And so, I mean, but it is going to come back to, to kick him in the butt because, I mean, listen, what's going to happen when it's actually time to vote and you haven't built that grassroots support? What's going to happen? Right now he's still leading in some polls, but I call it default support. It's default supporters. People, I don't know, I guess Joe Biden. It's those people. It's not the people who follow politics closely. (laughs) He calls her elitist, and he says, I'm the only person who can win the white working class voters that swung the 2016 election to Donald Trump. Guys, Joe Biden is a guy who has supported all these outsourcing deals. He supported NAFTA. And you're going to go win back the working class voters. By the way, I hate that he frames it as white working class, because why are you adding a racial angle to it? When I talk about the working class, I talk about people of all colors, ethnicities, backgrounds, faiths. I mean, so he's narrowing it on purpose. That's really creepy and weird. But he said, I'm the only one who can win them back. Why? Because you're an older white guy and you think that they identify with you more? 
but her policies actually help the working class more than your policies do. Bernie's helps them more than both of you guys, but Elizabeth Warren is better than you in terms of policies helping that region of the country. So you think, I mean, listen, he's lucky that to this point people haven't really gone to the mat against him because he can, the mask can get ripped off of Joe Biden super quickly. You're talking about a guy who was for NAFTA. You're talking about a guy who really uh, pushed for the Iraq war. This is a guy who, on almost every major issue, when it mattered, he was on the wrong side of it. He's so vulnerable, on top of the fact that he's barely coherent anymore. The idea that he's the best bet against Donald Trump, it's this facade of electability, because the media keeps saying Joe Biden is the most electable. But he's not the most electable. He's the most vulnerable candidate. He's talking about the kids need to hear words. (laughs) What was the other part of it? I'm blanking on the other part of it now. Um, Oh, keep the record player on at night. Make sure the kids hear words. This guy's going to, I mean, he's going to be all over the place. He's going to make no sense. He's going to be incoherent, and Trump's going to bash him over the head. I'm telling you, man, you cannot go in the direction of Joe Biden. He's the least electable. Even putting aside the fact that I disagree with him on a lot of his policy positions, and he's a very conservative Democrat. He's a very corporate, corrupt Democrat. He's just, even from just a stylistic perspective, he's the most vulnerable. Elizabeth Warren, I have disagreements with her wonky, technocratic, professorial approach, but I still think it's better than Joe Biden. Um, So there you have it. Anytime these clowns are telling you, oh, it's unrealistic to do the policies that the left wants to do, just understand, again, every other developed country has these basic policies that we're calling for. So really, that's their way of saying, I can't argue with you on the substance. I can't make a counter policy point. So I'm just going to take the whole conversation and push it to the side and say, well, throw a wet blanket over it. Well, what are you going to do? It's unrealistic. So, you know, it's big change. We can't, we can't do that. We shouldn't do that. Every step of the way, man. Could you imagine what Joe Biden would have said when women were first pushing for the right to vote? Come on, it's unrealistic. That's change that's too radical. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Maybe there's a half measure. Only land-owning women can vote or something. I don't know. We'll find something. But not, not I mean, come on, going too far here. Women voting. On the issue of segregation, what if he was, what if he was uh, you know, when that debate first started, what if he was a, a political player? I don't know, man. I don't know. It seems pretty unrealistic to me. We've had this entire U.S. experiment and... People of color haven't had the right to vote, really. We're going we're gonna to get to a point where they can vote. And you might say, come on, Kyle, you're being unfair. But remember, early in Joe Biden's career, he did work with segregationists. And he agreed with them on segregation, particularly um, busing. So he didn't want forced, desegregated busing. Wow. So he's adopting their language and their framing. Oh, it's forced to desegregate it. It's forced to desegregate busing. So um, he's Obama's VP, and he's coasting off that, you know, that label to this point. But it's time for that mask to come off, man, because he's the elitist, as he's accusing everybody else of being elitist. He's the one taking big money. He's the one representing the policy positions of the 1%. So it is ironic, and it is projection for him to do this. And it's really frustrating because, again, he's got nothing to run on. So he's trying all these shortcuts. 
he's uh, he's like cheating in the discourse, and this is the result. Okay, next. All right, Bill Gates is a giant asshole. So Bill Gates outed himself as a pretty giant prick this weekend. Listen to this from Mediaite. Speaking at a forum in New York with New York Times writer Andrew Ross Sorkin, Microsoft founder Bill Gates came off as far from enthusiastic about war in 2020. Speaking about the wealth tax, Gates said, there's a limit to what he would be willing to pay. Quote, if I had to pay $20 billion, it's fine, Gates said. But when you say I should pay $100 billion, then I'm starting to do a little math about what I have left over. Sorkin asked Gates if he'd consider sitting down with the Massachusetts senator. Quote, I'm not sure how open-minded she is, or that she'd even be willing to sit down with somebody who has large amounts of money, Gates said. Then Sorkin posed a scenario which, for the moment, is a hypothetical, albeit one which appears to have more of a chance of happening by the day. The Times writer asked Gates who he would back in a general election, Warren or President Donald Trump. So he says the following, quote, I'm not going to make de- political declarations. But I do think no matter what policy somebody has in mind, whoever I decide will have the more professional approach in the current situation. Probably is the thing I will weigh the most. And I hope that the more professional candidate is an electable candidate. In the business, that's what we call a giant dodge. And in the business, that's also what we call not saying, of course I would support Warren over Trump. What are you, crazy? Amazing. He has this reputation of like, oh, he's one of the good billionaires. And then he comes out and says this. Okay. In so many ways and on so many levels, this is a nonsense comment from him. First of all, under this wealth tax that he's slamming, he says, oh, you want me to pay $20 billion? Fine. Should I pay $100 billion? Fine. Uh, no, I'm sorry. The $100 billion party goes, no, not that. But $20 billion maybe. He wouldn't, he wouldn't pay anywhere near $100 billion under this proposal. He wouldn't even pay anywhere near $20 billion under this proposal. So for him to act like, like, oh, my God, this is crazy, I think that if my math is correct, and I could be wrong because I suck at math, but he'd owe about $3 billion. Guys, he has $106 billion. For him to owe $3 billion, you do the math on that. So for him to, to bitch and whine and moan about this wealth tax, when the wealth tax is him paying less than even under his hypothetical scenario where he said he'd be cool with it, he says, oh, $20 billion, fine, I'd pay that. Well, this has you paying much less than $20 billion, so why are you acting like, no, 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 I don't know, Warren versus Trump, that's a tough one. I'd go with whoever's more professional. By the way, I know the answer to that, Warren's more professional sounding. But he's not saying, yes, I'd vote for Warren. It's a dodge, man. This is his way of saying, I hope Amy Klobuchar or I hope Mayor Pete wins the primary. Oh, they're the ones who are more professional. So I, you know, we, I hope whoever gets the nomination is a more professional candidate. Okay, so, but l- let me go a step further, man. 
So he wouldn't owe anywhere near what he says is not acceptable under this plan. So why aren't you saying it's okay? Maybe he's just a douche and he wants to keep all his money. Um, but also, even if he owed $100 billion, which he doesn't under anybody's plan, not even under Bernie's plan, which goes further than a warrant, if he owed $100 billion, he'd still have over $6 billion left over. Over $6 billion. $6 billion. That's still more than any individual can spend in a lifetime. So you're going to sit there and you're going to act like, you know, woe is me. Oh, wow. I might have to start doing the math to see how much more I have left over. Oh, would you look at that at $6 billion. So maybe you should go to www.shuddy.com. $6 billion and you're going to sit there and complain? Listen, man, I think there's a reasonable discussion to be had as to what's the line. Like, where's the line where the wealth becomes obscene? Where's the line where just the existence of that wealth within the hand of one person means that it destabilizes democracy by its very nature? Because when you're wealthy enough, when you're rich enough, you, that's power and control. And you could basically totally pervert and corrupt the, the political system to be biased in your favor and against the people. So where is that line is a reasonable conversation. But to act like you're some sort of victim when you have $6 billion left is beyond ridiculous. And I don't like the framing. Like, people act like, you know, oh, but you're taking $100 billion from him. But what you're doing there is you're, you're submitting to the system as it exists right now and acting like that is the system full stop. I know that's a weird and clunky way of phrasing it, but I'm trying to come up with a better way of describing that. But a system that allowed him to accumulate $106 billion in the first place, I don't know why it needs to be perceived as that $106 billion is his. Because your market value doesn't equal your human value. So when you say my market value is $106 billion, and so therefore... That's the money that I deserve. That's the money I'm owed. No, that's just your market value. The fact that we allow it to get to the point where, you know, you get all of your market value makes no sense because under this system, we have millions and millions and millions of people whose market value doesn't even give them enough money to pay the light bill, to pay the water bill. We have tens of millions of working poor people in this country. 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Half of workers in this country make $30,000 a year or less. So that imbalance in the system, yes, that's the market value of everybody in the system. But the market value is not equal to the human value. So to have the market value as the sole determ- you know, determiner, determiner, sole determinant, sole deter- I don't know how to say this word, but to have the market value as the main thing that determines how much money you make and how much money you're worth and what you have in your bank account and what you have in assets and what you have in stocks, I think is ridiculous. I do. And that's the whole point of having a progressive tax system is to try to ameliorate the deep ills that come about as a result of an unfettered free market capitalist system. And by the way, we don't even have an unfettered free market capitalist system. We have a corporatist system where it's, it's socialism for the rich in many respects. They get the special tax breaks. They get the special subsidies. They get the bailouts when the shit hits the fan. 
And everybody else, it's rugged, individualistic, unfettered capitalism for you. You have to really compete if you're a small business owner, if you're a worker. But the, the elite, the rich, Wall Street, military-industrial complex, the captains of industry, they get the unfair advantages because they get the benefits of socialism when the government bails them out and helps them out and gives them tax credits and gives them subsidies, so on and so forth. So I don't – even the idea, even the framing of, oh, you're taking $100 billion of his money, I don't even think that's an accurate way of having the conversation. I don't think that that framing makes sense because nobody earned – you didn't earn $106 billion. That's not a thing. Some of the hardest working people I've known in my entire life, in my life, were living at or below the poverty line. I know somebody who worked three jobs, and he was living around the poverty line. One of the hardest work people I've ever known, and he was not well off at all financially. So maybe we don't have a meritocracy. Maybe it's not that the harder you work, the further you go. And we need to recognize that. And when you recognize that, you realize anybody having over $100 billion, that's beyond ridiculous. Bill Gates, you're supposed to, you think we're supposed to sit back and watch that and go, oh, that's, yeah, that's cool. Like, oh, that's all, that should all be his. What? There's no conceivable scenario in which any candidate, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, or anybody else, makes it so Bill Gates is not going to be okay financially. No matter what happens, he's always going to be okay financially, full stop. Even if we took 100, took $100 billion, he still had six, has $6 billion left over. So the whole, like, you know... He has like this victim complex, this, this fear of being oppressed when he is the least oppressed person in the country. And that's what's insufferable about this, is it's always the people that are the least oppressed that whine the loudest like they are oppressed. It says quite a bit that he couldn't just say, yes, yes, of course I'd support Elizabeth Warren over Donald Trump, or God forbid you ask him about Bernie Sanders. It, it's a, it says so much that he just can't come out there and say, oh, obviously I'd support them. I mean, this guy is, this guy's a danger to the world. This guy's a thin-skinned lunatic. This guy is as corrupt as it gets. He can't say that. Why? Because Donald Trump is in favor of letting him keep untold more amounts of his money. Billions and billions and billions more. So that is, he's not, he's not betraying his class here. That's what it is. It really comes down to class politics. It comes down to elitism versus populism. He, when push comes to shove, as my friend Michael Brooks likes to say, capital breaks fascist. And that's what happened. Now, maybe there are some billionaires out there who actually would say, well, come on, who are we kidding? Of course I'd be for, for Warren or Bernie. But believe me, the number of them that would say that is incredibly low. And that's sad because that's not a hard decision. Warren versus Trump is not a hard decision. Bernie versus Trump is not a hard decision. And the fact that the moneyed interests have to misconstrue the situation, you know, act like the left is being more unreasonable than they are, act like even leaving him with $6 billion is unreasonable, is beyond ridiculous. She's not asking for anywhere near that much, and he's still uncomfortable with it. Says a lot, doesn't it?
Let's go to Quinnipiac and their awesome new poll. Quinnipiac has an interesting new poll that I want to share with you. This is a little gem that's hidden in there, but I think it's like, it might be low-key one of the most important factors in this election. This is uh, Kevin Robillard Robillard, uh, tweeted this. This is from that poll. Sanders has a massive lead in voter enthusiasm. 52% of Sanders voters are extremely excited to vote for him. Extremely excited. Uh, Buttigieg is 31% are excited to vote for him. Warren, only 23% are excited to vote for him. Biden, only 19% are excited to vote for him. By the way, that proves my case on Biden, that uh, Biden has default support. And then he says 61% of Sanders voters say they're definitely voting for him. 61%. 61%. For Biden, it's only 48. Warren, 44. Pete, 40. Guys, this is huge. It's huge because that enthusiasm is what drives elections, what really wins elections. Politics 101 is you got to turn out your base. Bernie Sanders turns out his base way more than anybody else in this election. And you know who else turns out their base? Donald Trump. So think about that. you got this guy who has hardcore supporters Highest approval rating in his own party of any president, Trump has. You have to counter that with somebody who has massive enthusiasm behind him, and that's Bernie Sanders. And again, 61% also say they're definitely voting for Bernie. Closest one to him is Biden at 48%. So this is, when people like Bernie, they love Bernie. And Bernie, it depends on what poll you look at, but... Um, generally speaking, he's doing very well in the first three contests, in the polls that are coming out of the first three contests. Um, And in the national polls, he's doing okay. He can be doing better, but he's within striking distance of the lead, and um, he has this gap, which is huge. Now, there's some other facts that came out of this poll that I want to share with you. Um, The under 50 vote, listen to this. Bernie Sanders with the under 50 vote leading, under 50. So basically, you know, middle-aged and younger, 28% Bernie has, Warren's in number two place with 24%, Pete 16%, and Biden is 6% with under 50. Guys, all of Biden's support is the older generation. All of Biden's support. Again, Bernie is leading 28%. That's four points above the number two position, which is Warren. Um, white voters with no college degree, Bernie 23%, Biden 19%, Warren 19%, Pete 15%. Um, and then here's one of my favorite facts. This I think is really, really interesting. Um, Bernie leads Warren with very liberal as well as moderate and conservative voters. So the only, that means the only group that Warren is leading in is um, the somewhat liberal category. So Bernie gets the left flank of the Democratic Party and even the self-described conservatives in the Democratic Party. That's fascinating. 
It shows he has cross-ideological appeal. And I think that's good evidence that more independents would come out for him and more new voters would come out for him as well. And then also, Bernie's leading with people that make under $50,000 a year. It's huge. All these uh, demographics that I'm giving you are massively important. Um, And then when asked who people think the most honest candidate is, would you like to take a guess who, who wins that? Bernie. Bernie 23, Pete 21, Warren 16, Biden 9. And who cares the most? Bernie 33, Warren 15, Pete 12, Biden 6. And um, even among voters who say this will be their first caucus, first-time voters, Bernie 30, Warren 24, Pete 10, Biden 9. So he's leading in all these really, really important metrics. Um, And, you know... I, I don't – I've kind of shied away more recently from talking too much about polls and overanalyzing and looking too much into it. I just kind of want – because my answer is always going to be the same. Whether the Bernie polls are bad or the Bernie polls are good, we have to keep fighting. We have to keep campaigning and canvassing and calling people and getting involved. So the answer is always the same, so why stress too much on the polls? But the reason why I wanted to bring this up for you is these are indicators that I haven't seen any polls on yet at all. And all of these indicators are very heavily in the direction of Bernie Sanders, which means that a lot of that sentiment that you get online, is not, that's not BS sentiment. That's not fake. That's not like, oh, you could discount that. No, that's actually taking the temperature of a real situation around the country. And um, it's nice to see that, that he's leading in all of these little subcategories that I think are extremely important when push comes to shove and it's time to actually vote. So... Um, We'll see what happens moving forward, but he's in a good place, man. He's in striking distance, and the front runner is, you know, on baby deer legs at the moment. And really, ultimately, it should come down to a race between Bernie and Warren. It's just a matter of when that will materialize. Okay. All right, Tulsi Gabbard. So Tulsi Gabbard went on The View this week, and um, she seems completely fed up. Actually, you know what? Let me change the graphic. I fucked up. I'm not, uh, I'm not doing too well with the graphics these days. So Tulsi Gabbard went on The View this week, and she seems completely fed up with the -the over-the-top smears against her. So she's going to address it. It gets a little bit awkward in the room there, but I think she does a fantastic job. Take a look. Recently on your show here. uh, I'm just going to get to that. Good. accused me of being a, uh, a traitor to my country, a Russian asset, a Trojan horse, uh, or a, we useful, a useful idiot, I think was the well, term useful. that you used. 
which basically means that I'm uh, naive or, or lack of intelligence to know what's going they on. That. I want to let I want to let your viewers know exactly who I am. All right. Set the record straight. I am a patriot. I love our country. I am a strong and intelligent woman of color, and I have dedicated almost my entire adult life to protecting the safety, security, and the freedom of all Americans in this country. It would be attached on my refreshing. He doesn't find me refreshing. Uh, Richard Spencer, the white nationalist leader, says he could vote for you. Joy, this is why I mean, this you're on, you're on Tucker Carlson at least ten times. Why don't you go on this Wallace's show? This is why I'm here, because you and other people continue to, to spread these innuendos that have nothing to do with who I am. Well, Hillary that Clinton has started and then you shot back at her, boy. <laughs> you called her the queen of you, warmongers. You doubled down, unfortunately, you doubled down on the baseless accusations that she made that strikes at the core of who I am. I'm a soldier. Because of the attacks on 9-11, I enlisted in the military to go after and defeat and destroy the evil that visited us on that day. I've served now for over 16 years. I uh, deployed twice in the Middle East during the height of the war, where every single day I saw firsthand the terribly high human cost. That's why I ran for Congress. We actually have the clip of Hillary Clinton, just to put this in context of what we're talking about. Let's, let's take a look at that. I'm not making any predictions, but I think they've got their eye on somebody who's currently in the Democratic primary and are grooming her to be the third-party candidate. She's a favorite of the Russians. They have a bunch of, you know, sites and bots and other uh, ways of supporting her so far, uh, and I, I'm, that, that's assuming Jill Stein will give it up, which she might not, because she's also a Russian uh, asset. So Really? I mean, this is outrageous. This is outrageous and offensive on so many levels. I've served as a member of Congress now for almost seven years, receiving high-level national security and intelligence briefings serving on the Foreign Affairs Committee, the Armed Services Committee, the Homeland Security Committee, working to ensure the safety and security of the people of this country. This is why I'm running for president, to continue that commitment of service. So are you surprised, though, that when people see bots and things and all the things that we've sort of been seeing heading you away, uh, that people have these questions? Because she's not the only one. Hillary, I don't think, is the only one. So what she's saying is she feels they are grooming you. You're saying nobody's grooming me. I'm doing what I'm doing because I'm a soldier and a patriot. It, it's offensive to me as a soldier, as an American, as a member of Congress, as a veteran, and frankly, as a woman, to be so demeaned in you such a way. Her the personification in, of the so demeaned She's a woman in such too. a way. Well, I'm pointing to the fact that she has continued this legacy of being the world's police around the world that has waged wars costing the lives of thousands of my brothers and sisters in uniform. I'm speaking out against that and What's to, your change, that? to change that. Well, can I, are, can you I, are you serious? Are you serious? I served in the war Not in you, Iraq. Her. You said that she, exactly. She's a I served in the war in Iraq yeah. that she championed. She championed a regime change Did war you not in Libya. In that war? I believe the lies that were told to us. Well, so did she. Uh, <laughs> it, it, is, it is indisputable. It is indisputable to say 
anything other than the fact well, that Hillary, let me just close this up, that Hillary Clinton throughout her career has led with a foreign policy of interventionism mm -hmm. and being the world's police, going and toppling dictators in other countries that has caused such destruction and loss of life. I'm against that. I'm running for president to change that. Rather than actually debate me on the issues, she and others are resorting to these smear tactic campaigns seeking to undermine me, smear my character, and sending a message to anyone who dissents Stand, toe the line, or you too will be smeared. Man, I just I just feel bad for Tulsi at this point because it's like when they want to come after you, they come after you. And the oldest trick in the book is just find an angle and just keep hammering away on it over and over and over and over and over. So they don't have stuff to go after her like she says there that's really policy-related, where they come out looking better than she does. So it's just, okay, the thing we're going to hang our hat on is Russian puppet being groomed to run third party, even though she said repeatedly she's not going to run third party, and just use that angle and just go, 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 and get your minions in the media to do your bidding and to parrot that same line. Obviously, no need for evidence or take whatever, however flimsy your evidence is, use that and act like it's conclusive, and just don't stop. And so it's the, you know, Assad puppet, you know, you love brutal dictators line, and it's the, oh my God, Russian asset line. And it's just that over and over and over and over and over. And listen, you know, I hate to say it, but this is one of the reasons why I was warning from early on um, against the whole Russiagate angle is not only that I knew it wasn't really true and that they were making it out to be a bigger thing than it was, what, this idea that Vladimir Putin is, like, secretly controlling Donald Trump? That's ridiculous. But beyond that, I knew this will immediately be flipped back on the left. And they're doing it to Tulsi. If you think they're not going to do it to Bernie Sanders, you're crazy. They've already done it to Bernie Sanders in some respects, but they'll crank that up even more when he it becomes clear that he's going to be one of the last candidates standing, and we got a real race and Bernie's one of the last ones standing, they will crank that into overdrive and they're going to go after him in the exact same way. So I just feel bad at this point because what you have is this giant multi-billion dollar media apparatus and democratic establishment apparatus, and they just all say the same thing and they just go. And if you'll, you'll notice something, they go way harder against Democrats who step out of line than even going after Republicans. They're tougher on Democrats who step out of line than they are on Republicans. I, I mean, that's what I see for sure. And um, it, it's a shame because people, like, they're acting like this is a serious issue, and then they even, like Tulsi here, like, they still have to debate it. It's not even like she could just go out there and say, this is dumb, here's why. It's that, you know, Whoopi's like, well, some people are concerned. It's not just Hillary Clinton, so what do you say to these? Some people who are concerned about It's like, oh, my God. And this is what stops a lot of good people from getting involved in politics in the first place. I don't want to run for office. I see what they do to somebody like Tulsi. I see what they do to Bernie. I want nothing to do with that. I mean, they're going to, they come after you in the most vicious ways. And unfortunately for so many good people, they want to shy away from that because they don't want their character, you know, uh, put through the ringer like that. And it's just simply not fair. And um, so let's go through some of the arguments here. The first one, I wanted to rip my hair out immediately upon listening to this clip because uh, Joy Behar, who usually is not terrible, but in this instance she's just 
oh my God, so grotesque. She says, oh, Franklin Graham thinks you're refreshing. Richard Spencer likes you, and you're on Tucker Carlson all the time. Okay, so for Franklin Graham liking her, there are right-wingers who like my show, and because they might agree with my take, for example, on being against war. There could be some paleoconservatives who watch the show. Oh, I like Kyle's take on war. I don't hate Kyle. Now, they might have a, a, a view on race, which is abhorrent. They might be racist and admit they're racist. Does that mean that if they say, I like Kyle because of his foreign policy take, that now all of a sudden it's fair to say, well, I, I guess he's racist too, right? Because that guy likes you. And, but no, uh, my position on race is totally different from their position on race. But it's, see, it doesn't have to make sense. You just throw it out there and just all you have to do is say those two names in the same sentence. Oh, Franklin Graham and Tulsi Gabbard. Ooh, she must do something wrong because he says she's okay. It used to be considered a good thing to have get people who don't usually agree with you to agree with you, if, especially if it's on your terms. If it's on your terms and if it's you not compromising your values and getting people to agree with you, it used to be a ve- considered a very good thing. Oh, Richard Spencer says he could vote for you. Richard Spencer says he can vote for you. Again, just because, and Tulsi Gabbard, for the record, has fired back at Richard Spencer, fired back at David Duke. David Duke once said a positive word about Tulsi on Twitter, and her response was like, uh, I hate you and everything you stand for, and my father was, you know, whatever, the victim of some version of segregation, and like, so I disagree with everything you stand for. Go away. And so, but they're still going to use that to go after her. They still use that to go after her. Why? The whole point is to smear. The whole point is to, to link you with bad people, and the implication is, well, you must be a bad person, because if they like you, that must mean that, what, Tulsi's like secretly in favor of segregation or something. It's just not a fair criticism. Guys, there are fair criticisms of Tulsi. I voice them on this show. I do not agree at all with her health care plan, the, the Medicare choice, as she said. You could keep your employer insurance. <clears throat> hate that stuff, hate it. But that's a legit policy criticism. The criticisms she's getting from these clowns are all smear attacks and character criticisms where they're trying to link her to proven racists, to insane evangelicals. Oh, if they like her, then there must be something wrong with her, right? It's got to be, it's got to be that she secretly agrees with them on everything. The Tucker Carlson point. She's gone on CNN. She's gone on MSNBC. Yes, she goes on Tucker Carlson, but she's made a point. I'm going to try to reach out to everybody in the country. Now, you know, you still want to go after her on that? Fine, but be specific about it. You know, it's too, it's just they're flinging mud and hoping something sticks. And all they have is, I don't know, there's some bad people who like you, so I guess by extension you must be a bad person. Um, And then I wish, she does a great job because she's being basically like dogpiled by so many people there, but... I wish she would sharpen her message a little bit and just be like, listen, Hillary Clinton hates me because I stepped down from the DNC to endorse Bernie Sanders against her in 2016, and she also hates me because I'm not in favor of war in Syria. That's it. I just, like, and just keep, you keep repeating that as much as they keep repeating, you're a Russian asset or whatever. I like that she does the whole, like, are you kidding me? I've actually served this country. I'm a major in the military right now and all that stuff. But I just wish she would be more clear as to why it is that Hillary Clinton hates her, because I don't want anybody walking away thinking that the reason Hillary Clinton hates her is because Hillary actually thinks that maybe she's a Russian asset or something. No. She actually is just – she knows that she's not a Russian asset. She's just going after her because 
she hates Tulsi for endorsing Bernie, and she hates Tulsi for being against war in Syria. Because in Hillary's mind, oh, if you're against war in Syria, well, that means you're doing Putin's bidding, because Putin is, uh, you know, allied with the Assad government. And unless you want to topple the Assad government, you're helping Vladimir Putin. And then the fact that they felt the need to disagree with her, even on the indisputable stuff she was saying. So when she says um, Hillary's the queen of, queen of warmongers and personification of corruption, and one of them is like, what's your evidence for, for that? What's your evidence on the warmonger point? And she's like, are you serious? <laughs> evidence on the warmonger point is she pushed for the war in Iraq relentlessly. And uh, Joy goes, oh, well, I guess she believed the lies, too. Listen, man, there was even a middle ground on Iraq that Hillary Clinton refused to take. The middle ground was wait for there to be evidence and wait for the U.N. to approve the war. And if the U.N. approves the war, then you give George W. Bush the green light to, to do the war. She didn't take that middle ground. That was an actual bill that was proposed hey, we're not for war, we're not against war. We're just saying there needs to be evidence of the claims, and if the U.N. approves it, then Bush can do it. And the U.N. never approved it. So that would have prevented the war if Hillary was in favor of that bill and if they passed that bill. She didn't take that middle position. She took the position of give him the ability to go to war. She voted for the war. She was for the war. So um, to say, like, what do you mean she's the queen of warmongers? What about Libya, orchestrating the intervention in Libya? We came, we saw he died or whatever. She's been for every intervention in public life. She, was, she wasn't even in favor of Obama's you know, negotiations with Iran originally. Now, after he, he won and he got a great deal, then she flipped and was like, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a good deal. To her credit, that's good that she did that. But she originally wasn't even in favor of talking to Iran. She made that a campaign issue in 2008 when Obama said, I'll talk to Iran without preconditions. She attacked him for that. She is the queen of warmongers, without a doubt. And the idea, oh, what about the corruption angle? Jesus Christ. Literally, her and Bill have taken over $3 billion since in their respective careers. I mean, what Tulsi's saying here is indisputable. So it's just, it's so sad that the, the previous generation of Democratic leaders, the, the tricks that they resort to in order to go after the next generation of Democratic leaders, as Hillary's on the way out, it's let me take every candidate who's for real change in one way or another and smear them and go after their character and say, you cannot trust these people. It's just, it's disgusting. The damage that Hillary Clinton has done to the Democratic Party, the damage that that neoliberal, centrist, corporatist ideology has done, it's immeasurable. It's immeasurable. And then when anybody tries to get involved and change it, the claws come out in the most vicious ways. So I really do feel bad for Tulsi with this stuff. Um, the good news is, post the Hillary Clinton feud, she went up in the polls. She was at about 1%, and some polls had her as high as 4% after that Hillary Clinton feud. Um, so it just sucks, man. It just sucks. Like, I wish, 
I wish that we had a media that was serious enough to actually have the policy conversation with Tulsi and say, because there are areas I disagree with her, flat out. So why not have those conversations? Because they don't care about the policy stuff. All they have is their little, you know, buzzwords and smear tactics and nonsense, and that's readily apparent. after Trump in a very sad way. Let me cover that. CNN took time out of their busy day to do an entire segment on Trump sucking at spelling. Everybody makes spelling mistakes. All right, everybody does. I do, everybody does. But on Twitter, Donald Trump makes a lot more of them than most people. Just this week, he misspelled Republican and unfair. But those are hardly the worst examples. So we have seen countless absurd spellings from the commander-in-chief. He has called showbiz showbiz. There's hamburgers. There's the uh, smocking gun. There's a lot of these. Even misspelling his wife Melania's name. And he's been ridiculed for it by late-night comments. Uh, I think you've got a couple of typos on that shirt. No, this was taken verbatim from one of your tweets. Therefore, it's correct. <laughs> That's the thing. That's the truth, right? It's actually not that funny. I know English teachers are horrified by the president's poor form. Lots of other people are embarrassed by it, too. But I've never seen anyone do a comprehensive study of his spelling errors or look at what they mean. So that's where FactBase comes in. FactBase is this excellent website that has every single word the president says, some other politicians as well. It looks at all of Trump's tweets, even the deleted ones, for this database of typos and other screw-ups. So we give President Trump the full benefit of the doubt. These researchers only counted true misspellings, homophone swaps, and incorrect multi-word phrases. So, here's what the researchers found. On average, Trump makes a spelling error at least one out of every five days. And since taking office, he's made at least 188 of them total, more, more than 188 spelling errors on Twitter. Now, what do we compare this to? Let's take a look at Trump's family members to compare to, uh, let's take a look at the 2020 Democratic candidates as well, and just see how Trump compares. Well, this says it all. Someone like Andrew Yang, 14 mistakes. Bernie Sanders, three misspellings. Obama, zero. This is during the time since Trump took office. Donald Trump Jr. tweets a lot, so he's had 90 mistakes. But generally, all these politicians, they get it right. They're careful. They pay close attention to what they're tweeting. President Trump is really the, the odd man out on this, with constant misspellings on his feed. But it hasn't always been this way. Look, in 2015, only 18 misspellings, only 18 errors. There's been a huge spike since he took office. Of course, if he can't get the small stuff right, people worry about the big stuff. And he gets a lot of the small things wrong. Look, the word he misspells most often is counsel, as in White House counsel or special counsel. Uh, Fact-based found some other frequent misspellings, too, like Barack Obama misspelling Barack, maybe thinking of Tom Barack instead. Uh, there's others as well. Capitol Hill, he gets wrong a lot. Uh, there's a lot of these absurd errors that happen all the time. Trump often mistakes the difference between it is and it's. Uh, this is missing a difference in these words. So these are just some of the most frequent misspellings that we found. Uh, this is, of course, we can forget Kofifi and all of those. Uh, here's Trump's numbers up against Obama's, just to get it into perspective here, because, again, everybody makes mistakes, 
Obama started tweeting in, uh, Trump started tweeting in 2009, Obama started tweeting in 2012. If you compare their errors since joining Twitter, Trump has made 358 of those spelling mistakes, those errors. Uh, Barack Obama, four. We could all use a proofreader, right? I think President Trump could use two or three proofreaders. How on earth is he going to recover from this one? Damn, you guys wrecked him, bro. Congrats. By the way, that segment, that's not the end of the segment. He goes on to do an interview with, like, an expert on this, which is another five minutes or so. Okay, look, I'm going to make a weird case here, but bear with me because I think it's, uh, I think it's true, what I'm about to say. CNN always does this. They pick these angles to go after Trump that are just really gimmicky, and um, it's like, it's like shortcut politics. They're trying to play shortcut politics. They want you, they don't like Trump, they want you to hate Trump, and so they try to find ways to make you hate Trump, and they use points like this to build that case. It doesn't have the impact you think it does, man. It doesn't. Now, don't get me wrong. Do I think Trump is a dunderhead? Absolutely. <laughs> I think he's really not that intelligent. I do. I really do. But when you use this, and, like, you do segments on stuff like this, man, people can actually relate to Trump here. You know, like, quite literally, we all suck to one extent or another. I'm sure everybody's had uh, spelling error on Twitter. Now, I get, oh, he's had way more. That's, that's true. But it's not, like, people are going to see this, and it feels more like you're an elitist, picking on those who don't live up to your highbrow standards. That's what it feels like, man. That's what it feels like. It feels like you have to nitpick and you have to go after, you know, somebody in a way that's not substantive in order to build your case. And it's, I think people relate more with Trump in this than CNN thinks they do. You know, I, like the reaction, yes, there are going to be people who just hate Trump, and they're going to be like, ha-ha, yes, what an idiot. But, like, that's the whole point of the segment is to just make people be like, ha-ha, what an idiot. But we already know he's an idiot. We knew he was an idiot when he got elected. A lot of people who voted for him knew he was an idiot, but they still voted for him. What does that tell you? It tells you that there was – the establishment is so broken, and the system is so broken, that all the intelligent politicians, the thought from a lot of people was, well, yeah, they might be smart, but they're also conniving and backstabbing, and they're not going to fight for the American people. So people would rather have somebody who does spelling errors who's going to fight for the American people than somebody who never has a spelling error and they're really smart, but they're not actually trying to improve the lives of the American people. Now, here would be a fair time for people to go, but hold on, Trump's not fighting for the American people. Right, but that's my point is make that case. And they're not because they're too busy nitpicking and making stupid cases like this. This is like this, the segment that they did here would be okay for the Daily Show. Because The Daily Show is more of a comedy show. So you want to ha-ha-hee-hee, how stupid is he? Yes, you could do that, but do it in the context that's appropriate. You're supposed to be a news show, Brian Stelter. And so like here, let me give a few examples of why this is so annoying. There are three, as I was watching this, there were three substantive issues that popped in my mind that I can't remember ever seeing a CNN segment on. Now, maybe I'm wrong and I missed them, but even if these segments exist, they're not common. And these are the, the segments that should be common. Uh, we are currently seizing food shipments going into Venezuela, a country that's already starving, in part because of our sanctions, in part because of Maduro. But 
we are seizing food shipments going into that country. We say we care about the Venezuelan civilians, then we're stopping them from getting food. Okay? There's like a concerted effort to squeeze out the government there. We're waging economic war against them. I haven't seen, I don't think any segments painting that dispute in, a, in an accurate light. Iran. I've now seen three or four articles recently that are chastising Iran for now violating the terms of the deal. But hold on. We pulled out of the deal. We pulled out of the deal, and now we're chastising them for not following the deal. Okay, if you wanted them to follow it, why didn't you just stay in it? Because that's the way it works. We pulled out of it, so we have no right to bash them for violating the terms of the agreement. They were following it when they were in the agreement with us. But the media goes right along with the neoconservative framing on this. I haven't seen serious substantive discussion on that issue, and that could lead to the next giant war, a war with Iran. And instead, they're doing segments like this. And the other issue is the uh, predatory payday loan industry. You want to talk about collusion? Trump colluded with the predatory payday loan industry. They gave him millions of dollars at his inauguration and his campaign, and he is scrapping Obama-era rules that would have cracked down on the predatory payday loan industry. He's scrapping those rules, and he's helping them out, and they're continuing to rip people off, and he's in favor of that. Oh, the forgotten men and women will never be forgotten again. Nonsense. You're fighting for the predatory payday loan industry against regular people. I don't see anything about this on CNN ever. But Brian Stelter had time to go after Trump for his misspellings. By the way, some of them, like, yes, again, I don't think he's a smart guy at all. But also some of these things like this one, despite the constant negative press cofefe, like that was obviously just a, a, an autocorrect that hit him. How many times have you been gotten by autocorrect? I know I get got by autocorrect all the time. All the time, because you just hit send quickly, and then you realize afterwards, oh, fuck, it's autocorrected me to something ridiculous. How many times has uh, fucking been changed to ducking? Like, I've had that happen so many times. So the Kofefe thing was obviously just a fucking freak autocorrect that he got hit with. It's supposed to be, despite the negative press coverage, that's what it's supposed to say, obviously. Duh. But, like, people, oh, he said, go, baby, he said, go, baby. Uh, okay, who fucking gives a shit? Move on. What's wrong with you people? Like, it's the low-hanging fruit that drives me crazy about the Trump era. That, like, like cackling hyenas or cackling jackals, they find the little things, and then they just only talk about the surface BS when it comes to Trump. There's a lot of real stuff to go after. You don't have to do a, a tedious sniveling, little cowardly, weaselly segment about, he misspells a lot. Oh, you got him, bro. Congratulations. So I know. And some people watch this segment and say, oh, your Kyle's like awkwardly defending Trump. No, I just gave you a thousand things to really go after him for. Not a thousand, three. But still, like, if you can't see why this comes across as annoying, I can't help you. I just can't help you. Because I got news for you. And I looked up the number last night, but I'm already forgetting it. But I think the number was 14%. Only 14% have a great deal of confidence in the media in this country. 14%. You know what that means? The media is even more disliked than Donald Trump. Gee, I wonder why. Because you watch stuff like this and you go, really? You decided to fill an entire block with this garbage? We already knew he was an idiot. We knew he was an idiot the day he was elected. Trying to... Get them on stuff like this. You're not going to make anybody who's a Trump supporter go, oh, you got him. Now I'm changing my mind. 
No, the way you get people to change their mind is to show you what he's really doing in the country policy-wise and how it's actually hurting people like them. That's how you change their mind. And that's certainly not what CNN is doing because I don't think they're capable of doing it because the people they hired are not those kinds of people. They're more likely to do the, the got you segments like this. And it's just so annoying. And it, I, I want to bleach my brain after watching silliness like this. take a break when we come back um you're about to watch a stunning admission about the nature of the establishment wing of the democratic party and then um msnbc hosts are going to show how they're massively overpaid and really silly stay right there we'll be right back with all that and more
Beach. All right, y'all. We are back. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about health care. Let's talk a little bit about health care, bitch. Oh, you will see that the establishment wing just doesn't get it. Take it from me, parents just don't understand. Okay. Here we go. Boom shakalaka. The clip that you're about to watch from Meet the Press is uh, really a stunning admission about the nature of the establishment wing of the Democratic Party. So this is what the Obama team is saying behind closed doors about health care. I'm neutral here, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a fair critique. What I'm not neutral about is, is ACA. And I know that's part of what the sort of conversation that you say. The, the Obama, Obama case. Yes. Because, you know, I, I am in, in, in Obama guy, and I was talking to some, Obama, some Obama folks, and they cannot, will remain nameless. And they cannot understand the ideal that we have now, after all the, the, the everything you went through, all, everything we went through, all the political capital the president used, all these Democrats laying on the sword for this to get this thing passed. Now they they want to now when it's above water, Gall- I mean, Kaiser has eleven points above water now. Now they want to tear it all down and start 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 over. To a lot of the Obama people, it makes zero political sense. Wow, that's such an indictment on them. Oh my goodness. So the argument is, this is what Obama and his team are saying behind closed doors. They're like, I don't get it. Why is health care such an issue? Why is it the main issue that these, you know, Democratic candidates are talking about? We fought so hard. We wasted so much political capital on this issue. And now we're going to, like, refight the battle all over again? Well, let's see. Healthcare consistently ranks as the number one most important issue to the American people. Maybe that's one of the reasons why, you know, we're talking about it and talking about it nonstop is because it's the American people's agenda. So that's the first point is what do you want to just ignore the number one political issue in the country? Is that what you want to do? That's the first point. The second point is we still have 500,000 people who go bankrupt as a result of medical bills in this country, and we still have 30,000 to 45,000 people who die because they don't have basic health care. So why is this still a main issue? Because health care is destroying the country. You know how many people die in Canada or Norway or Sweden or the UK or Australia because they don't have health care? Zero. Zero. Everybody has access to it, and it's less expensive. Everybody's covered. For less money. So this is this is just a number one issue. It is a top issue in the country. What they're saying is we are, we already did we already took care of that one. We already got Obamacare through. But here's the deal, guys, and this is another important part of the conversation. Republicans destroyed it. Just so you know, the original idea, the idea of Obamacare, the policy, is something called an individual mandate system. And that idea originated in the Heritage Foundation, which is a a right-wing think tank. It used to be supported by 
Chuck Grassley and Newt Gingrich. It's very similar to Mitt Romney's Romney Care in Massachusetts. So it's their idea. But what happened? As soon as it was a Democrat, it was Obama who championed their idea and got it through because he had a supermajority with zero Republican votes, by the way, he got it through. They flipped on it. As soon as it was, became the Democratic idea, they flipped on it. So Obama endorses the moderate Republican idea, and then the Republicans totally flip on it, and now they've destroyed it. Just so you know, they've destroyed it. Do you know how many people, according to Gallup, have lost health care in the Trump era as a direct result of his attacks on Obamacare? Seven million people. Seven million people. So guess what, Obama team? Your policy did not survive even one administration after. Didn't survive. Now, you could say, oh, blame the Republicans. But no, there's a reason why they were able to destroy it. Because Obamacare always polled around 50%. In some polls, it was just over 50%. In some polls, it was under 50%. But it was always around 50%. And so what happens? Republicans knew going after Obamacare is not a, a career destroyer. So they went after it. Individual mandate is now gone. It was repealed as part of the tax bill. Uh, Trump has done various executive orders that stab Obamacare in the back like ending or reducing massively the advertising budget for it. So, and, and that didn't hurt those Republicans. Certain aspects of it hurt them if they go after it. Protection for pre-existing conditions, for example. If you go after that, it's a wrap. And so even when they do go after that, they try, have to act like they're not because it's overwhelmingly popular. But other provisions of the law, they have no problem going after because it's not, this is not something that the American people view as off the table. Now, and that's another reason why you have to be able and you have to be willing to go all the way for Medicare for all. Because, and other countries, perfect example of this is other developed countries, it's at the point now where even conservative parties in respective uh, developed countries, they all have to take a hands-off approach to the healthcare system. Because the national healthcare systems are so popular that even conservative parties and even conservative voters say, hey, man, just don't, like, okay, fine, you can be as conservative as you want, but don't touch the national health system because it's incredibly important and we need it. And you see a similar thing, by the way, happen in this country. Whenever you have um, Social Security, for example, you can't cut that. It's a, and it is so difficult politically to try to cut it because whoever cuts it is wiped out in the next election, guaranteed, because it polls so overwhelmingly popular. So when you have more of a, a universal-style system, it becomes part of the fabric of the country in a way where it's so much harder to undercut it. And so Obamacare was not a universal system. Obamacare was a right-wing half-measure that kept the for-profit health insurance companies in place. So because it was a half-measure, it was ripe for being undermined, which is exactly what happened in the next administration with the Trump administration. But if you have a Medicare for All system, as soon as everybody experiences those benefits, good luck trying to cut it. And Republicans might, but if they do, what'll happen? They'll get wiped out in the next election, guaranteed. So this says a lot about the nature of the establishment wing of the Democratic Party. Because they just want, they want those victories, those check marks, but they don't want to do the hard work to really earn the long-term victories. They'd rather be able to say, oh, we compromised, we were bipartisan, we gave ground, we met in the middle. And then they're shocked when 
they're like, why would anybody want to go further than the middle? Because it's not a good policy. It's a terrible policy. You could say it's better than what we had before. I agree with that. But it's not a great policy. It's ripe for being undermined for sure. And we still have 30 to 45,000 deaths from lack of health care. We still have 500,000 bankruptcies. And for you to not understand that those things in and of themselves are such giant issues that, of course, they need addressing says a lot. You'd rather just say, hey, man, I got it done. I got health care reform done. And just give yourself that pat on the back. But that's not enough. It's not enough. These guys are more than willing to give away the farm and give away what their ideology should be in order to feel like they won. So it shows you how out of touch the Obama team is. Because they think they're centrist half measures, they're corporate centrist ideas. Like, what do you mean, good enough? Take your quarter measure and shut up. We're done with quarter measures. And the argument can be made that the quarter measures helped lead to the rise of the far right. How do you like them apples? That argument can definitely be made, and there's evidence for it. So stunning admission from the establishment wing of the Democratic Party. And um, it's time to go beyond their narrow thinking. Because they thought Obamacare was enough. What do you mean? Sure, we still have millions of people who are uninsured, but I thought this was good enough, right? Far enough, right? No, not remotely close to enough. All right, time to talk about the hosts on MSNBC, bitch. All right, here we go, baby. Here we go, baby. So the extremely overpaid hosts on MSNBC are sharpening their election analysis skills. Here's Mika Brzezinski with one of the most superficial takes I've ever heard about this election. There's a total conflation here between Trump and Bernie, and Trump and Warren and Bernie, because style stuff. But, uh, two candidates, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, at the top tier, who have plans that seem fantastical, going up against Trump, who sends out fantastical lies. It feels like Trump and Clinton all over again. Not a good matchup because they have synergy in ways that make Americans uncomfortable, I think. Or cancel each other out. And then can Joe Biden do it? I think still a question, but I see less so. I see him performing well out there, no? You see Joe Biden performing well out there? These people are so biased, it's comical. Like, when you watch this show, I tell you my bias up front. Guys, my ideology is social democratic. I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter. Here are the ideas I like. Mika Brzezinski never, ever has said, oh, just so you know, I fancy myself a a, a centrist, and um, here's who my preferred candidate is, and here are the ideas I like. She never did that, because she has this veneer of, I'm, I'm objective. She's nowhere near objective, but she has to pretend like she is. And so when she gives an analysis like this, it's presented as like, this is truth. I'm giving you truth. But look at what she said. She thinks Biden is doing better. Based on what? Based on what? 
the dude could still barely put together a sentence, and he's out there throwing haymakers at better candidates, Bernie and Warren, and it's embarrassing. So what are you basing that on? Nothing. Everything she says here is the conversation happening in her circles, in her, you know, upper class, very wealthy, elite media circles. That's, that's where this comes from. That's where this worldview comes from. She said, well, you know, the, you got like Bernie and Warren, they have these, quote, fantastical plans, and Trump tells fantastical lies. So, you know, they got like the same synergy, and it like cancels each other. Synergy? What? It's same synergy, and it like cancels each other out. So that argument there is more of like a style argument. Like, oh, they're not professional, and they're not centrist, and you got Trump who's, you know goes off the rails, but then you got Bernie and Warren, and they're like, you know, going off the rails too, and they have fantastical plans, and guys, how many times have we gone over this on this show? It's basically every segment we talk about this, but all Bernie Sanders wants is to catch up to the rest of the developed world. That's it. Social democracy is just catching up to the rest of the developed world. To act like those are fantastical, to act like those are impossible, that shows how deeply biased Mika Brzezinski is in favor of the status quo here. And she doesn't even realize it, which is embarrassing and sad and pathetic and shows how uneducated she is on politics here. But that's not fantastical. It's not even close to fantastical. It's common sense, actually, one could argue. But this is the kind of analysis that you get on mainstream outlets. And, as my buddy Jimmy Dore likes to say, you wonder why people get their news from YouTube. Because who watches, other than the top 1% and other than people who are already in elite media circles, who watched this and shook their head in agreement? Like, oh, yeah, sure, Biden's doing well, and uh, Bernie and, uh, and Trump are the same, and Warren and Trump are the same. Uh, and because, you know, it's horseshoe theory. Oh, my God, the far left and the far right, and they meet, and they're like the same thing, even though when you look at the plans proposed and you look at the policy direction of Trump versus Bernie – they are diametrically opposed. Just couldn't be more opposite. Bernie wants to end war. Trump is increasing war. Bernie wants to end sanctions. Trump is increasing sanctions. Bernie wants to regulate the economy to make sure we don't have another crash. Trump is deregulating the economy. Bernie wants to raise taxes on the rich. Trump wants to cut taxes on the rich. You know, Bernie's in favor of left-wing positions on social issues. Trump is in favor of right-wing positions on social issues and caters to evangelicals day in and day out. They could not be more different. If Mika Brzezinski was doing her job, she would sit there and go through each policy position with you for, from Trump versus the left-wing candidates, but she doesn't do that. She doesn't do that because she can't do that because it would make Bernie look good and it would make everybody else look bad. So instead it's, I don't know, they're kind of the same because they have fantastical plans and, you know, but Trump is fantastical, uh, the left is fantastical. And, uh, you know, you got the serious candidates like Biden, and he's, uh, but he's doing better. He's doing better. You don't want the synergy of the far right and the far left to cancel each other out. I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? The synergy cancels each other out. What? I think she's trying to say, well, you know, it's kooky on the left and kooky on the right, and just you got a reasonable center. Go to the reasonable center. Yeah. The corporate centrists are just status quo defenders pretending like they're truth tellers. And Mika Brzezinski is doing well, and everybody sitting around her table is doing well, and they don't understand the pain that's actually out there in America. They don't understand that 70% of workers are living paycheck to paycheck. 70% of Americans, I should say, are living paycheck to paycheck. Half of workers make $30,000 a year or less. Wages haven't budged 
since the 1980s. We're still, we're bombing eight different countries. We're waging a shadow war in Africa. Our infrastructure is crumbling. She doesn't understand that. She doesn't care about that because politics is all a game to her. And in this game, you get to sit there and pretend like you're serious and say, yes, Trump is bad, but so is the far left. Yes, and they're the same. Similar synergies. I don't know what that means, and she doesn't even know what that means. All she knows is she's been you know, coached her entire career to generally believe the far right is scary and crazy and the far left is scary and crazy, and aren't they kind of the same? They're not the same at all. And in fact, the centrists that Mika Brzezinski supports helped lead to the rise of the far right. They made it so fake populists could easily exploit the system because people knew the establishment was screwing them. So she's more of the problem, and she has no idea what she's doing. And in a world that made sense, she wouldn't be in this position that she's in. But the world doesn't make sense. So instead, we have a, an establishment media and a mainstream media that's terrible at their job, and you guys have to unfortunately go to places like YouTube and this show to get anything even remotely close to truth. All right, next we're going to go to CNN. So we just went after MSNBC. Now we're going to go after CNN. Um... Where's the clip on this one? This one is talking to swing voters, which is a great... I love that. Okay. Oh, wait. Did I... Ah, fuck. I gotta do the Epstein one first? Okay. Gotta go to the Epstein one first. My bad. So there have been some updates in the Jeffrey Epstein story. Um... A forensic pathologist who was hired by Epstein's brother says there were signs of homicide. Um, and I find it weird that anybody is trying to act like uh, he definitely killed himself. I mean, you have to be so naive to, th- to think that the head of Elite Pedophiles Incorporated um, killed himself. This is definitely a lot sketchier than the official story. Well, anyway, we now learn that there's a massive media cover-up as well, and the story was going to be broken three years ago, but it was, um, you know, not allowed to break at the last moment. So here's um, Sagar of Hill TV uh, doing a little segment on this. Take a look. Project Veritas released some footage yesterday of ABC News reporter Amy Robach lamenting on a hot mic that ABC News killed a story she had developed of alleged Jeffrey Epstein victim Virginia Roberts on tape years ago, leveling accusations not only against the now-dead financier, but implicating a member of the British royal family, Prince Andrew. She also had detailed reporting on connections between Epstein and former President Bill Clinton. Let's take a listen to the whole thing. I've had the story for three years. I've had this interview with Virginia Roberts. We would not put it on the air. Um, first of all, I was told, who's Jeffrey Epstein? No one knows who that is. This is a stupid story. Um, then the palace found out that we had her whole allegations about Prince Andrew and threatened us in a million different ways. Um, we were so afraid we wouldn't be able to interview Kate and Will that we that also quashed the story. And then um, and then Alan Dershowitz was also implicated in it because of the plane. So she told me everything. She had pictures. She had everything. She was in hiding for 12 years. We convinced her to come out. We convinced her to talk to us. 
Um, it was unbelievable what we had Clinton. We had everything. I, I tried for three years to get it on to no avail, and now it's all coming out, and it's like these new revelations that I freaking had of all of it. I, I, I'm so pissed right now. Like, every day I get more and more pissed because I'm just like, Oh my God! We it was um, what, what we had was unreal. Other women backing it up. Hey, yep. Brad Edwards, the attorney, three years ago, saying like, uh, like we there will come a day when we will realize Jeffrey Epstein was the most prolific pedophile this country has ever known. And I had it all three years ago. Robach's horrifying story. It contains all the same ingredients of NBC News' alleged cover-up of Harvey Weinstein, detailed by the enterprising journalist Ronan Farrow. The British royal family began exerting immense pressure on ABC News, who was desperate at the time to score an interview with Will and Kate. In other words, ABC News bosses killed a story about a sexual predator to preserve their relationship with the powerful. A side note, back in August, NPR also reported on ABC News quashing that story. But the ABC thing is the type of behind-the-scenes revelations that we all know happens daily. It is rarely captured so vividly on the screen. ABC is, of course, denying the story in some language you may find very familiar. First, they released a hostage statement from Robach, who was allegedly caught in a moment of private frustration, and that she could not obtain sufficient corroborating evidence to meet editorial standards. She also says nobody at ABC ever told her to stop investigating Epstein. ABC released their own statement side-by-side, side, saying Robach's reporting did not meet their standards to air and that they never stopped investigating the story. This is, of course, complete BS. Robach lays it out in the video. Her bosses told her, quote, nobody knows who this guy is in relation to Epstein. You don't think that's basically in order to stand down? ABC's explanation is literally exactly the same as NBC's pathetic excuse for not airing its Harvey Weinstein reporting, that the reporting did not meet the standards for air. And let me tell you what is newsworthy alone. It's this photo. That is a photo of a member of the British royal family with his arms wrapped around a 17-year-old girl at the residence of a known sexual predator. Do you have any more questions? Every single one of us knows why ABC News did not run the story and why NBC News killed the story into Harvey Weinstein. They wanted to preserve their relationship with the powerful. If they ran it, how else would things like this happen? Former Bill Clinton staffer and ABC star George Stephanopoulos once had dinner with Prince Andrew at Jeffrey Epstein's New York mansion in 2010 to discuss, well, of course, the upcoming wedding of Kate Middleton and Prince William. This is two years after Epstein was given his sweetheart deal by Florida prosecutors, but he was still required to register as a sex offender. What is the chief anchor for ABC News, the host of CBS Evening News' Katie Couric, CBS's Charlie Rose, Woody Allen, and Chelsea Handler all doing there, too? I think we all know the answer to that. And we're cozying up to power. <sighs> to quote the brilliant George Carlin, it's a big club and you ain't in it. And I don't know how much more evidence you need, man. Now, we all get it. Project Veritas is trash. Um, but that's what other, that's what mainstream media outlets are now using to say, we're not going to cover this because oh, Project Veritas is trash. But they didn't, that was just the video of an, an ABC news anchor talking about it. It's not... Like, there's no commentary from Project Veritas in that video, and everything they said there was just laid out clear as day. 
and there's no other like, oh, you can't say, oh, that was taken out of context. There is no context in which what you just saw is okay. So what we have here is powerful elites protecting powerful elites and basically exerting power from the top down to kill a story which would have really highlighted uh, an international pedophile ring. <laughs> so, and it's interesting because I've spoken about this before on the show. When you read Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent, you understand very, quick, very quickly that um, the way it works is more in the hiring process. The way it works is mainstream media organizations only hire people who they know won't really rock the boat and will kind of reflect uh, a worldview that's okay with elites. But in this instance, it actually even goes a step further. And, like, the smoke-filled back room idea becomes not crazy because you had reporters who did the work and were willing to expose the powerful. But so, in other words, in the hiring process, we didn't – we weren't uh, – the elites will think we weren't good enough in the hiring process because we found some people who actually want to expose wrongdoing by the powerful, and um, they killed the story. They killed the story. It went right up the chain, and the people at the top said, nope. And just gaslighting like crazy, by the way, when they say, oh, no, who even is this guy? Are you kidding me? <sighs> Jeffrey Epstein knew where all the bodies were buried, dog. Maybe literally, but definitely metaphorically. He knew exactly which royal family members were total perverted creeps and pedophiles. He knew which Wall Street goons were perverted creeps and pedophiles. He knew which members of the government were perverted creeps and pedophiles. And when he's in a, a, a prison with top-notch security and cameras on him, and he tries to commit suicide like two weeks before, and then somehow he, get, he kills himself, and there was a glitch with the camera thing, and People who were in that prison came out and said, that's impossible to kill yourself in there. Something's up. Something's up. And instead of the media doing their job and digging into this and getting the story and being serious about it and objective about it, what do they do? They'll look at anybody who brings this up. Credit to Sagar and Crystal here for doing this segment. But they'll look at anybody who brings this up and they'll say what? Say with me now. Conspiracy theorists. You're conspiracy theorists. Why are you talking about this, bro? It's conspiracy theory. It's conspiracy you want to be serious? you want to be taken seriously or not? And listen, man, I just need everybody to understand. There is immense pressure in these social circles to follow the crowd. And by the way, no disrespect to Politicon at all, but this is why whenever I'm backstage at Politicon, I'm in a, I'm in a little corner and I'm only talking to people who I already know. Because you feel it. You feel the pressure. You feel it when you're around, like, establishment journalists and politicians, media figures. Like, you, fe you can feel the groupthink in the air. And you know that once people get in that club, they'll do anything to stay in that club. And I don't want to be in that club. I don't want to have a nice, casual conversation with some far-right maniac or some establishment goon, because I'm going to be calling them out on the show a week later. So I don't want to know that Sean Hannity's a nice guy or whatever. And by the way, when I was standing backstage before one of my panels, he walked by, 
and there were four panelists there, including myself. And he's like, hey, guys, how's it going? And he seemed like a really nice guy. <laughs> he was very, like, he was willing, like, jovial. And I was like, oh, God damn it. Sean, stop it. Tell me I'm an asshole or something. But see, that, but that's the point. The point is it's human nature to want to get along. And once you view these people as individual human beings, it's harder to look at what they actually do and analyze it objectively. So I do my best to insulate myself and get away from it because I don't want to be part of the club. I never wanted to be part of the club. And so neither does Sagar, neither does Crystal. Anybody who's really telling you the truth does not want to be part of the club. And what you'll see is everybody who is part of the club, they're walking on eggshells, not covering the story. Or if they do cover it, they'll say how, you know, the conspiracy theories say anything other than suicide happened. But listen, this is one of those things where the conspiracy theory is the more reasonable explanation. It just is. The conspiracy is the more reasonable explanation. The he was probably murdered from some higher up who knew he was going to blow the lid off this whole thing. That's the more reasonable explanation, man. It is. So um, I'll end the segment the same way I started the segment, by telling everybody George Carlin's wonderful, wonderful, brilliant words. It's a big club and you ain't in it. So just know that and... uh, I'll go wherever the evidence takes me, man. (laughs) And the evidence as of this moment is, I don't know who was responsible for killing him, obviously. I just don't know. But I do know that there's, there was almost certainly, and is almost certainly, like a secretive cabal of elites who are quite literally part of or okay with a giant pedophile ring. It's Pizzagate in real life, but without literally being connected to the pizza parlor, if that makes sense. All right, next. Okay, Boomer. It's time to do the Okay, Boomer story. Chloe Swarbrick is a 25-year-old lawmaker in New Zealand, and um, she was heckled while giving a speech on the issue of climate change, on a, on a specific climate change bill that they were debating here. So her response to being heckled is going viral. Take a look. Transformational. My generation and the generations after me do not have that luxury. In the year 2050, I will be 56 years old. Yet, right now, the average age of this 52nd Parliament is 49 years old. Okay, Boomer. Uh, Current political institutions have proven themselves incompetent at thinking outside of a short political term. Change is so regularly sacrificed for power. Slogans are easy, but this stuff, this action is hard. Climate action cannot be sacrificed any more for political convenience. Climate change is a deeply inconvenient 
okay boomer reaction has gone viral. Um, recently, this blew up recently. It's been around for a while, but it just really like blew up recently. Um, there was a guy who I think wrote an article. It may have just been a tweet, but I think he actually wrote an article. I don't know the guy's name. And he argued that saying okay boomer is like that's the new N-word. <laughs> don't say that, dog. I mean, come on, man. What are you doing? Why are you being ridiculous? Um, and, you know, I'm sure all you guys know what OK Boomer is, but for for those of you who don't, I'll try to explain it. Um, it's become the reaction to, like, when, when the older generations, particularly the baby boomer generation, when they, like, smugly and condescendingly go after our generation and the younger generation, I'm a millennial, but when they come after millennials, when they come after... Um, Generation Z, like, OK Boomer is our way of being like, we've already gone over this a million times as to why you're wrong and why you're ridiculous in in coming after us, and we're tired of it. And we don't even have the energy anymore to give you reasons that you're not going to listen to anyway. So it's like, OK Boomer, whatever. Like, I got it. I know. Yeah, I get it. Oh, younger generation, you guys are so lazy, you know? Back in my day, um, we used to walk 12 miles uphill both ways to school in the snow. And it's like, okay, Boomer, I get it. So you think we're entitled? You think we're lazy? They blame us, ironically, for all the problem, all the you know, social and political problems in the country. And I think, I know from my perspective, but definitely from the perspective of a lot of people in my generation as well, in the younger generation, it's like, you guys waged all these different wars. You got us in Iraq. You got us in Afghanistan. Okay? You guys crashed the economy. You deregulated massively. You cut taxes for the rich. You guys gutted unions. You guys got us to a position where wages are still stagnant from the 1980s and people are hurting. You guys, you know, went to freaking college for 14 cents and a Pop-Tart. Meanwhile, our generation has $1.4 trillion in student loan debt. So they, the older generations made all these decisions that screwed us over, and then they turn around and blame us and then act like, we're lazy, entitled millennial generation. And it's just like, okay, Boomer, I got you. Next. Like, we're so tired of your silliness and your nonsense that we've outgrown that. Now, here's the interesting conversation, though, and why I'm, I wanted to talk about this. There's the position of many people in the older generations who are like, how dare you? This is like a slur now against us. What happened to like the, what are you, younger people snowflakes? Do you need a safe space? And then all of a sudden when they hear something they don't like, it's "Ah, like the N-word. Don't say it anymore. (laughs) Do you need a safe space? Are you a snowflake? But I actually saw an interesting argument from a lefty who I respect. And he was like, don't, it's, it's bordering on ageism now to even say the boomer thing. And his argument was not flippant. His argument was like, hey, man, there are plenty of people in the older generation who don't think like, you know, like the stereotype of the boomer who's incredibly dismissive and condescending to the younger generation. There's plenty of people who are of that age who don't think that way. And, again, it really – the real divide is more about class than it is about age – and, um, I mean, that's a fair point, too, but I think the OK Boomer thing, it's, 
we're just, it, it's understandable because we're so sickened by, like, when you poll younger people, overwhelmingly, I, in my opinion, and I am a younger person, I'm biased, but it's, like, our opinions are really reasonable. Like, overwhelmingly, we're in favor of all the policy ideas that, in my view, would really fix this country and just create a better system. And we keep getting gaslit at every turn by the older generations and stymied by the older generations. And um, so we finally had enough. And especially in the context of this debate, climate change, and taking action to try to, you know, save the planet, to run into resistance on that, either because the, pol- the politicians are corrupt and doing the bidding of big oil, or because they're just genuinely ideologically brainwashed and really believe that climate change is a hoax or whatever, whatever the reason is, the initial reaction, and it, it just kind of came out when she said it, she said, okay, Boomer, like, it's totally understandable. You know, uh, I think it's fair to use it as long as you're also clear. And I think we all get it that, sure, there are plenty of people who are the baby Boomer generation and the silent generation, that's the older one, who they're good people and they mean well and they're for fixing the system too. It's just that, unfortunately, there's so many in the older generation who are not in favor of those things. And that's where it came from, and that's kind of why it blew up online. So anyway, uh, either way, you can see why this, uh, this moment went viral. It's a pretty cool moment. No, Boomer is not like the N-word. And um, I don't know. I'm curious to see what the other left dialogue is on this. I think it was uh, Bhaskar Sankara who wrote the article who was like, eh, I, still, I don't really like the OK Boomer thing. Um, but I'm curious what everybody else's opinion is on it. I'm kind of agnostic on it, but I definitely understand where it comes from because I feel like we've been gaslit for so long. And... Um, what else is there to say when well, we're crystal clear every time we want to explain to the older generation what direction we should take the country and why everything's so screwed up? They don't listen, and they chastise us and accuse us of being entitled little babies. And it's like, okay, then what do you want me to do? I already argued with you, so okay, Boomer. <laughs> Next, moving on. Um, but anyway, it was a good clip. I like the, the viral clip here. So Republicans are threatening to invade Mexico, invade Mexico. This is after uh, the drug cartel murdered nine Mormons as they were in a car. Here's Senator Tom Cotton talking about this on Fox News. Maybe 
nice for a children's fairy tale. But in the real world, when the bad guys and cartels have 50 caliber machine guns, the only answer is more bullets and bigger bullets. And if Mexico can't protect American citizens in Mexico, then we may have to take matters into our own hands. And how might we do that? Like, I, I was talking yesterday about the, the idea of designating the cartels as a terrorist organization. Would that make a difference? Well, one thing we could do, uh, Dana, is increase the penalties and sanctions that transnational criminal organizations already face. Most of the cartels are de designated as such organizations. But look, our special operations forces were able to take down al-Baghdadi in Syria a couple weeks ago. They did it to Osama bin Laden in Pakistan eight years ago. I have every confidence that if the president directs them to do so, they can impose a world of hurt on these cartels a few dozen miles away from the American border. And I can tell you that opinion inside of Congress is running extremely aggressive towards the cartels in this latest act of depraved violence. So what happened with these nine Mormons who were killed, and by the way, Vice News did a great um, segment on this years ago, I think, actually, about the Mormons who are living in Mexico and um, the battles they have had with uh, the drug cartels. I I'm pretty sure that in this instance, they thought that the Mormons in the car the were part of a rival drug gang. And... Um, they killed them. I think they, I don't know how they killed them. I don't know if they shot some sort of, obviously, whatever they shot at them was big enough to destroy a, a vehicle and everybody inside of it. But, um, yeah, this is, what's happening in Mexico is crazy at the moment. But, of course, Tom Cotton gets exactly backwards. Now, Trump has came out and said, oh, maybe we'll help the Mexican government wage war on, uh, on the cartels. Yeah, you know, maybe we should do this thing, we could call it, I don't know, maybe a drug war and go after them in a military fashion. That's what we've been doing. This is the drug war. And things have not gotten better, things have gotten worse. So his reaction of like, oh, maybe let's invade Mexico. The only way to defeat the drug cartels once and for all is to put them out of business. If you legalized, taxed, and regulated the production, distribution, and sale of marijuana tomorrow in this country, the drug cartels would immediately begin losing their power. And over time, maybe over the course of a year or two, they'd be out of business. And they'd, oh, they have to try to find another product to sell. And, but again, this is why it's so important to do it properly, to definitely at the very least decriminalize all drugs but maybe legalize marijuana for sure. Maybe legalize even other drugs as well. You could regulate it heavily to make sure that the amounts are reasonable and whatnot. But if you, if you beat them at their own game, if you legalize tax and regulate it, what happens? Who's going to want to go to a creepy back alley and talk to a sketchy character to get drugs when they can go to CVS or Walgreens or the grocery store or whatever it might be? I mean, come on, man. This is the only way. You have to put them out of business. And the way you put them out of business is to make a better product at a lower price, safer product as well, and allow that. If you don't allow that, then they're going to have a monopoly on the, the whole drug business. And that's what they have right now, a monopoly. And that's why they're so powerful. They reap all the benefits and all the rewards of being the only game in town when it comes to selling marijuana. So at a federal level in the U.S., you have to legalize tax and regulate it. The fact that Tom Cotton 
does not understand this or doesn't care. And again, all he sees is a military reaction says everything about Tom Cotton. This is a guy who said, we didn't go far enough at Guantanamo. We tortured, we should have done more torture and worse torture. This is what he believes. He's never met a war he doesn't like. And yet again, all he has is a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. So he's like, ah, we should like wage war against them. You want to invade Mexico? That's what you want to do? You want to invade Mexico for a problem. It's playing whack-a-mole. You know the game whack-a-mole? You hit this thing there, it pops up over here. You hit the thing there, it pops up over here. That's, the, that's exactly what would happen and what is happening in this situation with the drug war. So the only way you're going to really save lives, protect people, prevent situations like this happening in the future is to put the drug cartels out of business. Until then, you're always going to have cartels. You're always going to do violence. And you will have instances like this where the cartels mistake a car of Mormon Americans from they, – they think that they're the rival cartel and they attack them. So it's just – it's amazing to me. And by the way, acting like, oh, AMLO – um, you know, needs to get tougher on them. The Mexican government needs to get tougher on the drug cartels. We were just in a position where we captured El Chapo's son. The Mexican government did that. And then they had to release him because if the government didn't release El, El Chapo's son, the drug cartels were going to do a genocide of civilians. So what do you mean? Like, okay, get tougher. What did you want them to do? Capture El Chapo's son, not release him when they said they were going to do a genocide, and then sit back and watch them do a genocide and then try to fight them? Further, and it would be like it would the escalation of a literal war would explode in Mexico and would make the situation worse. And there'd be more deaths, higher body count, more lives destroyed, the economy in tatters. Like, this is what you wanted to do, but this is all this is what he wants to do because he's a maniac and he's a hawk, and all he wants to do is war. So, his solution would exacerbate the problem, and he doesn't care because he's not bright enough to figure that out, or even if he did figure it out, he still would be in favor of a militaristic approach, because that's who he is and that's how he thinks. So what happened was absolutely terrible. The best thing we could do is to make sure it doesn't ever happen again in the future. And the way you do it is to legalize tax and regulate drugs, not do a drug war, which is something that we're already doing, which has already been an abysmal failure, which led to the thing that happened in the first place. Okay. All right, now we're going to go to that CNN panel and do it, baby. This is a good one. I like this story. So CNN spoke to a panel of female swing voters in Pennsylvania. Um, I think this segment is absolutely fascinating. The very last part is the part that made headlines. But pay attention to the rest of what they say, too, because there's a lot of hidden gems in here.
way when we have homeless veterans on the street. Like, really? Uh, go to San Diego, go to Los Angeles, and you'll see them. It, it's pitiful. Those people, uh, that's where Congress should be working. Exactly. Uh, that's where they yeah, should be working. Thank you. Just so I'm clear on that. So you're comfortable with withholding military aid to Ukraine that they're fighting Russia because you don't like the idea that those, that money goes there anyway. Well, I don't know why it's going there, but I'm saying if they have money to be given to everybody, why not help our own people first? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Are you comfortable, show of hands, with asking a foreign entity for help with dirt on a political opponent? Nobody is comfortable with that. Yeah. No. You I, are comfortable with it, Crystal. Why, are you, why do you think it's okay to ask the foreign power? President of the United States, you shouldn't be allowed to ask for military information. Well, this is political information. Well, even political information. Does that bother Didn't you? Didn't every other president do it? I can't speak for any other president, but I know they that. all do it. <laughs> I don't know that to be true. I don't know that to be true either. So why are you resting, uh, hanging your I'm head just off? saying. I'm just saying. But I mean, you're comfortable with it because that's how you think it works. As, as a business owner. Right? As a business owner, yes. So you just see this as a business it transaction. Is. His business is this country. So getting dirt to benefit him does not benefit this country. That benefits yeah, him. Yeah, he's a, not a accountability here. And no matter what business you're in or what, what you're doing, you, accountability, you just, yeah. it's, it's bad practice. Show of hands, how many uh, would like the identity of the whistleblower to be revealed and think it should be? That's not how it's supposed to work. The whole point is it's supposed to be one of those checks and balances where you can come forward and say, this is going on, and people don't know, and it's wrong. It's like going to your human resources. Exactly. And that's what that's it's, what it's supposed to be a confidential exactly. thing. What's your response, Andrea? I don't think that it should be revealed right now. I think that for, like, historical purposes, um, that, yes, it would be nice for the American people to know what happened, who saw this. Like, you're curious. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You're saying you're curious. Yeah, but that can get that person shot. The point of the whistleblower is anonymity, so are you uncomfortable that President Trump calls for their identity to be unmasked? I don't think it should be unmasked publicly. But what if President Trump knows about it? That will be public. That's wrong. It'll be public. I mean, it'll be on Twitter, it, I assume, it, it, in five minutes. How many people think the impeachment process will hurt President Trump? I think it's going to hurt everyone. Okay, so you think it will hurt President Trump. Is that to say that the other five of you think it will hurt the Democrats? I think it's going to hurt everyone. I yeah, think when you yeah, flash mud, it hits everyone. Yes. And, again, they're not going to get nothing done because they're doing all this, worrying about these hearings and impeachment. To be fair, 490 bills have been passed by the House, 65 pieces of legislation have taken out of it. 65. 65 pieces of legislation. I'm because a lot of things are coming out of the House and then dying in the Senate. Absolutely. Right. Right. Because right. they won't work together. There's literally no compromise. Yeah. Right. Compromise is not a thing. Yes. No one's supposed yeah. to win all the time. Right. Everyone, from a business perspective, you, want to you don't walk away every time. Most of us are mothers, right. and we want everyone to work together. Yes. Crystal, is there anything that he could do or anything that could happen that would make you not vote for him? No. If he shot someone on Fifth Avenue, would you vote for him? You have to know why he shot him. Yeah, why did he shoot him? So that last part is the part that's making all the headlines. Like, oh, why did he shoot him? So you wouldn't rule out voting for him if he literally shot somebody? No, why did he shoot him? Yeah, I mean, I get the point she's trying to make is like, well, maybe it was in self-defense. And so if it was in self-defense, then of course it's fine. 
But that's going to be the headline. That's what everybody's going to talk about. But I think the rest of what they had to say there was actually really, really interesting. Um, so the thing that stuck out most to me is when they talk about the Ukraine thing, when they talk about impeachment, there's not – like this isn't the silver bullet that the Democrats think it is. There's a lot of like, well, you know, hey, all the presidents do it. All the presidents try to get dirt. Um, and, well, the impeachment's not going to go anywhere anyway. And only one person thought the impeachment would hurt Trump. Only one person. And then a bunch of the others were like, I think it'll hurt both parties. I'd be curious to see if they should have asked who think it'll hurt the Democrats more. That would have been a good question. I would like to see the number of hands there. Remember, these are female swing voters in Pennsylvania. But um, the most interesting part was, well, I mean, they're focusing on the impeachment, and the Ukraine thing, and, like, nothing's, nothing's getting done. And then Alton uh, Camarota says, well, the Dems passed 490 bills out of the House, and, but only 65 have come to a vote in the Senate. And then they all acknowledge that, and they're like, yeah, like, wow, they need to work together. Now, you guys know my whole thing on working together. Working together on what? Like, you got to be specific. What? If they're working together to deregulate Wall Street, I'm not in favor of that kind of working together. But if it's working together to do things that are good for the American people, like end the genocide in Yemen, well, then, yeah, that's a good thing, and I hope they do work together. But, see, the Democrats have a winning argument right there, and I haven't seen a single one of them make it. And the winning argument is, we passed 490 bills out of the House, and only 65 were voted on in the Senate. What's wrong with you? Why are the Republicans refusing to do their job governing? Here are some of the bills we passed. We passed election reform. In the House, they passed a minimum wage increase. They passed it. Go down the list. Have, have talking points of like five really good pieces of legislation that poll above 60%. Have five of them. And every Democrat, when they're getting interviewed by CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or any of the mainstream media networks, any of the nightly news shows, anytime they're given a press conference, whatever it might be, have every Democrat list off those five policies and say over and over, we passed it, we did our job, this is what the American people want, and Mitch McConnell ain't bringing it up for a vote. But instead, and here's the unfortunate thing, they did pass those 490 bills, only 65 of them were voted on in the Senate, but they never talk about it. They never talk about it. All day long, it's impeachment, all day long, it's um, you know, Ukraine, the phone call, the whistleblower, this, like all day long, it's that. I got news for everybody. Unless you're a deep political junkie, you're not getting in the nitty-gritty of that stuff. You're just not. You know the cursory story, oh, okay, so Trump tried to get dirt on his political opponent, uh, Biden, but it's also true that Biden and his son are a little bit weary and corrupt, and I don't know why they were doing what they were doing with that Ukrainian nat natural gas firm. So unless people really follow their stuff closely, they're not going to have a really fully formed opinion on all that stuff. You have to, you have to go deep to get to really be into that angle of this conversation. But what everybody does understand and what everybody can get is 490 bills we passed in the House. They're hardly voting on any of them in the Senate. And here are those pieces of legislation. It is infuriating that that is not the centerpiece of what the Democrats are talking about. It is criminal that they haven't had their meeting and come out of there with the five policies they passed are the most popular and just repeat it over and over and over, because Trump is now saying all day, do nothing Democrats. That's his you know, new Twitter thing against the Democrats, the do nothing Democrats. 
That's not true. 490 bills coming out of the House, they are doing their job there, but they're never talking about it. And this, again, comes to my main problem, one of my main problems with the Democrats, which is they have no idea how to, how to campaign, how to market, how to do their own PR, how to portray themselves in the best light possible. They're so wrapped up in the Ukraine gate thing and the impeachment thing that it's, that dominates the entire political discourse. And you can in part blame the media for it, but more blame the Democrats because if the Democrats forced the conversation to be about the bills that they passed, which are popular, then the media would have to talk about it. And they'd be like, well, yeah, I mean, they did pass all these bills and it's the Republicans and Mitch McConnell blocking it. So if Trump say do nothing Democrats, that's not true. If anything, it's do nothing Republicans because they're blocking everything in the Senate. So um, that's what I take away from this, that this the 2020 election might be honestly an easy election for Democrats to win if they do what I just said. You have to, most of your dialogue, most of your commentary needs to be about those bills that you passed and why they're good and how they're being blocked. And then everybody will know, oh, so we want adults who do the actual work to help the people. Well, Democrats are doing it. Look, 490 bills. They're doing it. They're doing it. But no, that's not the discussion we're having in the country. And instead, you get very nuanced. I mean, I know that last woman, oh, what did he shoot? What did Trump kill the person over? What did he shoot the person over? But most of those people had interesting views on a variety of different issues. But the one thing they all agreed on was like, do, do stuff, like do stuff. And the Democrats did it, but they're not talking about doing it. And that's a problem. Because what you want is everybody on that panel, instead of being like, do stuff, why aren't you doing stuff? Instead of that, you want them all to be like, well, it's true, the Democrats did stuff, and it's McConnell and the Republicans blocking it. Once all those people think that, then the Democrats cruise to victory in the next election. Yet again, this is my free you know, strategizing advice to the Democratic Party, and they will proceed to not take this advice, and it will be a nail-biter election, unfortunately, again. Okay. That'll do it for today's show, baby. That'll do it for today's show, bitch. All right, guys. I love you all. I hope everybody enjoys the rest of your day. I will see you back here, normal time, regular time, same time, same place, on Monday. I'm out. Peace.